makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Chasha, I can do Chasha. O eto na kicha makaki de la kan umpi. O ahutopa na hupahu yukhabi. Takos kanskan umpi kile na yuha. Makaki de la. I can't think of that on each other. 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 Greetings and good day and welcome, my relatives. I shake your hands with good feelings in my heart, and the whole world is a beautiful day. It's good for all of us to be here and let the people hear your voice respectfully. Celebrate life. This is First Voices Radio, and I send you greetings and strength from the east gate of Turtle Island, where the sun and the water touch the earth at once. And I'm your host, Teokas and Ghost Horse. And this is an all-native hosted, all-native produced First Voices Radio now in its 29th year of broadcasting. And Liz Hill is First Voices Radio's producer. And you can now hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as firstvoicesindigenousradio.org for archives. And you can hear us internationally on Savizar Contemporary in Berlin and Potsdam, Germany. Our first guest, Janine Yazi, is a returning guest, and she is a Dene woman from the Navajo Nation who has worked on human rights and indigenous rights issues for the past 15 years at the national and international levels. An advocate, entrepreneur, and community organizer, Janine works with indigenous peoples to develop sustainable and regenerative economies through her company, Sixth World Solutions. And Janine also works part-time as the International Indian Treaty Council Sustainable Development Program Coordinator. I'd like to welcome you this morning to First Voices Radio, Janine. Thank you. It's an honor to talk to you this morning. Thank 
Thank you so much, Tio Kassin. It's so great to be back on your show and discuss this important topic. You know, the the topic that I, that I wanted to talk to you about is more or less uh, some age-old idea about ever since our land has been taken. This We say our in, in the context of speaking this language of ownership. And since 1492 with the papal bulls. But a lot of people, you know, when I talk to non-natives, and they say, what, what do you mean by land back? You, it's impossible. You cannot to get the land back, you know, unless some good-hearted human being who understands uh, that there's been a steal, basically, here of this land. And now that it's been mistreated, we as Native people have understood all this time that unless we are really looking to restore this land, regenerate this land, or rejuvenate this land, is that the ideas that we have are age-old memories with this land. And I think that's the kinship ties to this land or something that cannot be severed. And so what logical, spiritual, logical, common sense does it make for people to look at giving land back, which is really, they can't because it belongs to the native people in the first place. So I wanted to bring you on, Janine, to to ask you to talk about what this movement, this mindset, this thought process of land back really means to people. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we've been hearing a lot about it in our circles as well because of the uh, appearance of what people are considering a new hashtag, hashtag land back. Um, but you said it so accurately. This is actually um, a, an ongoing movement that has deep roots in our lived experience as indigenous peoples, you know, resisting and fighting against settler colonialism and the colonization of all the life-giving resources um, that make up our ecosystems. And so I, um, I can see how people get confused, especially when it's used in social media campaigns or as a slogan without any real context. Um, about the meaning of what land back is, because so many people are just indoctrinated into the Western way of thinking of looking at land as a resource to be possessed and to be owned and to be controlled. And so, when you have, when you're in, in like growing up in that mindset, when you're conditioned under that mindset, and you see something like that. Um, you, it definitely does trigger a lot of settler colonialists um, because they start getting, you know, they get that fear in their eyes. <laughs> um, but really what we're asking for is something much deeper and much more um, meaningful and resonating with our ancestral uh, ways of knowing and the way that hum- humanity needs to go to really address a lot of the issues that we're dealing with around um, water insecurity, food insecurity. I mean, with what we've experienced right now with COVID-19, all of these things are can be connected to uh, the disruption of our sacred relationship and responsibility to the earth. And so when we think about land back, it's helpful to think about returning back to the land uh, as the true meaning behind it. And for Indigenous peoples, that's our right to live in in accordance with our original instructions, our natural laws, our ways of knowing, our traditional knowledge systems, um, which uh, really um, are are centered around understanding what is that sacred responsibility 
to land and all of life and, and that principle that we belong to the land. It doesn't belong to us. And, and so I, I think it's an important aspect to really think about as, as everyone's uh, not only uh, grappling with this pandemic, which, you know, we know pandemics such as COVID um, were predicted for uh, many years because of the loss of biological diversity, because of the loss of natural habitat and the destruction that we've just been, um, that's just been uh, carried out by corporate capitalism and globalization. Um, and, and as a result of that, because if, if we don't change our patterns or, and our behaviors of consumption and exploitation, we can expect more pandemics into the future as well. So it's very important for people to understand what this really means um, for our movements and for setting a direction forward. Janine, I think that's a very valid point is to, to understand the connection. But beyond that, as you would think, is the relationship that we've had as catalysts for this current generation, I would say, those people who are alive, the organizers. And then you hear it in the cry of the elders and the elders from, you know, before your generation, before your grandmother's generation, is that that adherence to the, the traditions to to help people who came here, the settlers, to understand why they must behave in a certain respectful way towards the land, because obviously that has not happened because of what was going on. And now, as we say, some of the uh, Native people have said, well, it's a disconnection to, to the land that has caused this pandemic all over the world. So this is not just a local, regional, and national issue. It's, it's happening throughout the Western Hemisphere. It's happening throughout the world where people are losing contact or at least relationship with the land. And I, I really thank you for that. And when we, we talk about the, the struggle, the struggles uh, of oppressed peoples, so to speak, within this, this uh, boxed, box mentality, Western capitalism mentality, is that are, are we trying to default our thought processes, our, our common knowledge, so that this, this language we're speaking now, English, understands us? Because we've been always um, uh, uh, defaulting, you know, and, and really taking our language and having to retranslate, which it loses a lot of its translation to put it into a non-form, subjective, objective ownership. And, and yet... We've been doing this for a long time. Do you think there's any progress or any movement in, in that understandability that, that should be there? You know, it's very difficult um, for all the reasons that you laid out. And that's why um, it's important to also understand the land back movement as connected to language, uh, indigenous languages, and, and what that means in terms of those being the key and the pathways to understanding what this relationship is. And a lot of times, some of the things and, and, and um, framing that we use as Indigenous peoples um, in the English language to advocate for ourselves, our people, and our communities, you can't translate that back into our Indigenous language because we don't have those concepts, right? So it's, it's always this catch-22, like, um, for example, Indigenous rights. A lot of our communities don't have a language for rights and what that means. But Indigenous rights is the dominant way that we um, frame our advocacy, um, either through the uh, legal sphere, through the political sphere, through the educational sphere. 
Um, but it doesn't really fully encapture a lot of times like what it is that we are working towards. And I think that we're, we're facing that same difficulty with land back and trying to translate a lot of these things. And, you know, it's, it's always, I think um, we're always having to go back uh, to our traditional knowledge holders, to our elders, to the people who have been a part of carrying forward and building these movements before we've, our generation has come onto the scene um, to really reevaluate um, some of the terms that we use, some of the framing that we use, because the one of the pitfalls when we're when we're translating this into like English terms in order to build that understanding and communicate um, with with uh, non-indigenous peoples and mindsets is that it often gets co-opted and 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 the the words start losing meaning. Um, they start. Um, I don't know, becoming uh, intellectualized in academia. Um, and so, like, things, and we've seen this happen before, right, of things like traditional agriculture being, like, consumed, extracted, and then repackaged back to us as agroecology, right, which is now, like, the new movement. And I think that's also what we've seen um, just in the short term that this hashtag and the slogan line back has, has, has existed, um, because it's it's being packaged in that way, it's being disconnected by a lot of the people who don't um, have access to the the histories of indigenous movements from from those roots, from from the the history and the fact that this has always been a part of our our existence, that it's always been articulated as not not um, looking at land as a commodity, but looking at land as ourselves, as a piece of us. And that this isn't about calling for a transfer of property or property rights or getting the same authorities to exploit and, and extract resources from our lands, but a restoration of a social, a sacred, and, and, and an interdependent and reciprocal relationship to, our, to these territories that, are, that we're gifted with. And that this doesn't just exist, like this relationship and the need for this restoration doesn't just exist on traditional territories. It exists in cities, it exists in urban areas, it exists in relationship to water, to, to air, to, to all of the sacred elements of life. And so when we're, when we're trying to capture that all in like the English language, a lot of the true meaning of, of, of what it is gets lost. But I think that we've learned from, um, you know, like from the American Indian movement, which was uh, had a, was like a huge advancement and sort of like the indigenous intellectualism and, and articulation of sovereignty, of liberation, of what that means, what inherent sovereignty means for our people, that it's worth putting the effort into trying to communicate that and figuring out that way forward. And I think in the, for, for younger generations, it's become even more critical because so many of our indigenous peoples are losing their languages um, or have lost their languages because of generations of displacement from their territories. So it's not only a benefit to try to figure out how to communicate this to non-indigenous peoples using the English language. It also helps us communicate the same traditions, the same understandings and value systems and principles and protocols to many of our indigenous peoples who've had our languages robbed from them. Thank you, Janine. Um, before you, you, you alluded to consent, basically that we need this uh, consultation and, you know, how to deal with what we see as the land 
and that the the, the interpretation of, of our language, right? So so, but then there you mentioned the, the natives who have basically lost a lot of our language and the meanings of it, and yet in that dismantling of what's been replaced with that loss has been the white supremacist uh, structures, right? Mm-hmm. And that, and so now we, as natives, are also working on ourselves as well as feeling the oppression from the outside. But yet there is that internal link in that DNA to keep our people's, um, you know, always working for that land, no matter where we grew up in a city or not, you feel it. It's, it's, it's something that seems so idealistic and maybe even new agey to non-natives who don't see it our way, that the return of the land also means the return of the beauty and the, the, uh, the bounty, the abundance of, of the land, not just for humans and an anthropocentric uh, thought process, but it's also for what is now missing is the birds, the, the, you know, the nature is missing because it miss, I, you know, and I'm going to get sentimental here. I think it misses native people's thoughts and our, our way we walk on the land and how we talk to, you know, that which is all sentient. And, and I think that, that is one thing that we don't talk enough about because we can't really accept it so well in this language we talk because then it gets to, well, if the natives want their land back, that becomes a threat. You see? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It just gets um, kind of enveloped in that in that mindset of scarcity and competition, which is like the root conditions created by white supremacy and white supremacy culture. And, and I think that that's very important for people to understand because, the, they're, you know, what we've learned with what's happened at the Capitol and whatnot is that there's a direct link between new agey, new agey tradition and white supremacy. And there always has been that link. And so it's not about um, performance of, of a, a connection to land. It really is a deeper spiritual and almost indescribable connection. And I remember um, having the privilege of being a part of a, a ceremony that were led by some of our Mayan relatives, and they made a very great observation and point about the state of our world, and that was that we have forgotten to love. And they're like, not like human to human love, not love for man and love for each other. You know, like we, we get enough of that messaging and we've, it's confused us in a lot of ways. We've forgotten the love of the universe, the love of feeling our connection to the stars, to the life force that exists around us and how that manifests every time we interact with our, with our soil, with our plants, with our medicines, with our language, with our people, with the with the animals and all forms of life. And I, and I think that that's something that's really paramount and, and gets hard to kind of explain to people who, who are conditioned under looking at love and, and being loving a certain way without it having losing that, that depth and that value and that wisdom. But it's something that we have to continue to push forward uh, for because I, re- I really do see this impacting so many people in terms of their mental, spiritual, and behavioral health. And as we know in a lot of our work with the land and what it means to restore that responsibility, what we do to the land, we do to ourselves. So if we're not healthy as people and as communities, 
um, we're not going to be able to restore our sacred responsibility. And that's the beauty of the interconnected uh, interconnectedness of how we look at this relationship and what land back actually means. We're speaking with Janine Yazi, who is with the Six World Solutions, a company that looking for regenerative uh, solutions, I would say. And I think what we've been talking about is actually can be framed in a sense that this is part of the wisdom that comes, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say unheralded, but it's not heard as well, um, even by our own people. I could go to National Congress of American Indians and talk this way, but they're still stuck in the policy mode of let's let's make it understandable to the government. So, uh, let, you know, we'll, 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 and you said before, let's make our language academic. And, and I call them yakademics. You know, they're yakking all the time <laughs> and not getting anywhere, getting anywhere. So the land back movement really is not just looking for native people to have a, a land back, uh, you know, tech, tactile land, but but also other other people are involved in this too there, that uh, the envisioning world where there are indigenous black and people of culture, I like to call it, because I, I don't deal well with people of color. That's almost mm. almost a formula fed to us, you know, and, and so that's what we need to coexist. But it's 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 almost un, going unsaid that we already can find ways to do that since we're under the same oppressive cloak, so to speak. Yes, absolutely. And you hit it right on the head. Um, you know, like when we're talking about what indigenous peoples are pushing forward, when we're looking at the world, when we're talking about our worldviews and our knowledge systems and how that defines what land back means to us, what we can really, we can boil it down to two things. Like the Western world is based on extraction and our worldview is based on reciprocity. Um, in the Western world, being based on extraction, you're built to, you're structured to um, sow division, to segregate things and people and life forms, and to, to create all of these um, um, individualized sects. And a part of that is um, how and why we have come to see systems of power being structured on the policing of black and brown bodies. And so I think Indian Collective does a great job in their articulation of this and calling for um, the, the, the reality that land back must include the liberation of our black relatives, especially our black indigenous relatives. And so it's, it's, there's, there's this one part that needs to be articulated and we need to keep working on that and doing that work. But in, in order to keep it from just being, um, over, over, I don't know, like, like convoluted and, and distorted in academia, it also needs to be accompanied with real action with real returning to the land, with real carrying out and living of these responsibilities um, to, to, to take care of um, life around us and to, to live these values in our relationships. I was thinking about an elder that passed away a few years ago. Her name was Janet McLeod from the Lummi Nation, I believe, up in the Northwest. And she was talking about, you know, it, it, we'll join your movement and then we'll join that movement, too, after you help us liberate the land that we live, that is supposedly that we derive from as Native people. And, and yet these other movements, I would say, are, are failing to see that, you know, what, well, wait, what happened to who first? But now that we've joined the, the group of, of Black, Indigenous, and BIPOC, I'd say, uh, that collection is now, it's, it's on equal basis, but is it? Is it true that 
you know, because I, I have to go back to an incident back in my United Nations days in the early 2000s where a group of black people were demanding land, their 40 acres and a mule, and, and they were foregoing anything indigenous. And yet they, they were saying that indigenous peoples already got their reparations, their treaties. And as we know, the treaties have remained unsung, so to speak, because of what the devastation that continues to that land. So, you know, is there an order? Is there a process to go here? Do we say, do we say, uh, do we say B- POC or do we go with a certain color or a certain way, the roots of, of who this land mem- remembers? And then, then we work from there because a lot of non-natives would say, well, we should have listened to the Indians in the first place because they have it right or they had it right in that past tense. But there are people now, and I see it among the young people as well as the old people, that that wisdom is is, is in there without the, the education process interfering with that transference of energy, so to speak. No, it's it's extremely difficult. And one of the things I really appreciate about International Indian Treaty Council is just the longstanding commitment to the principle that we don't try to represent other people, right? Like we don't try to figure out those questions for other people. And I think our role with building Black and Indigenous solidarity is to, you know, uh, fact-check our relatives sometimes. And also fact-check ourselves as well as our, our, our Black Indigenous relatives when, when we um, ha- inadvertently start to carry out settler colonial practices and principles and values. And it's going to happen because we've been all been indoctrinated under these systems for so long and so many generations. But I really think um, there needs to be a space for our Black and Indigenous relatives to really um, help define and 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 help us um, articulate in a, in, a, in a lot of ways what decolonization looks like for them as well, um, and a lot of times that's going to be connected to indigenous nations and indigenous peoples having to confront anti-blackness in our own communities. Um, but I think um, there's just as how we like you, you know you use a, a perfect example, and I don't like we've seen that as well, and we still see that in <laughs> in UN and UN spheres, especially as now um, people are kind of being held under this umbrella of Afro descendants, um, and so there's a wide diversity of of, of um, black relatives that are held underneath that umbrella that can be kind of problematic. Um, we have to we have to be very careful about overgeneralizing. Right, like um, uh, BIPOC, for example, and that term that's being used, uh, it erases the generations of struggle of indigenous peoples fighting to be recognized as peoples, which is an, a, a recognized legal uh, uh, designation that that honors our right to inherent sovereignty. So when you put us in, into an acronym that's Black Indigenous People of Color you actually strip away what it took generations for people to realize. And so I think that in, in ways, things like that become harmful. But then also grouping un- everyone under people of color really obscures the type of intricate and place-based work that needs to be done to get our communities on the right track. We have different experiences of colonization. We have different experiences of being racialized under white supremacist institutions. But we can all agree, I believe, and, and, and come together around in a united way around a shared understanding of what liberation, what regener- regeneration, and what the future should and needs to look like for future generations. 
Um, but I don't think we've really had that conversation or have created enough spaces to have that conversation because we're so busy fighting all of the ways that we are, we continue to be targeted and met with um, state-sanctioned violence in defense of our lands, territories, and resources as Indigenous peoples. Janine Yazi is a advocate, entrepreneur, community organizer with the Six World Solutions, and it's an honor every time learning so much from you, Janine. Thank you so much for being here on First Voices, and we'll have you back soon. Thank you. Yes, no, thank you so much for having me. And this is Teokas and Ghost Horse First Voices Radio. And I'd like to thank you for joining us on that. And that's Janine Yazi, as I said, and Dene woman from the Navajo Nation who has worked on human rights and indigenous rights uh, for 15 years at the national and international level. And we'll be right back with, uh, with uh, another interview here. And I want to introduce this next song that's coming up here is really about what we were talking about, what Janine and, and I were talking about when it comes to the next song is from the Lummi Nation of the Northwest Washington State and is called Promises. Catherine Jeff- Jefferson, who's part of a group called the Thunderbirds, the Thunderbirds raised her and uh, had recorded it and here it is and enjoy. Of the 1855 Treaty of the Northwest Tribes. A lot of the tribes that are here at Canoe Journeys are um, their ancient chiefs. Their signature is written on that treaty. Um, So I felt that it was best to share this song because it talks about our people, Salish people, um, how we need to question. We need to ask, What about those promises? They promised us a lot of things and we need to start asking louder because we needed to be treated better. You see that we come all together for this healing. We need to come together with those voices and we have to spread the truth because we deserve better. And I wouldn't be here today if my ancestors didn't survive through all of this. And I am very thankful to be in front of you here today representing all of them. So this is what about those promises. The mountain still stands and the river still runs. The sun still sets after this all begun. The trees are cut down and traditions hold on. Our nations fought back, but it was almost gone, and I said, What about those promises? Fills my heart with sadness. I can't do this on my own. We gotta come together and be strong. My elders told me, that this is our home and how can one land sell all this land that we own we protected our lands like the waves of the sea but they tracked us all down and we fell to our knees and I said what about the promises fills my heart with sadness I can't do this on my own we 
gotta come together and be strong When we first signed the treaty We thought it was right We had to change all our ways And conform to their lives Many warriors have died But still live in our hearts They took away all our voices And tore families apart And I said What about those promises? Fills my heart with sadness I can't do this on my own we gotta come together and be strong Through promise, sovereignty, and freedom, you said Now five hundred years you take our children away Boarding schools, foster homes, adopted And that was Catherine Jeff Jeffries of the Lummi Nation of the Northwest, in the Northwest of Washington State. And it's called Promises. And young lady, about 16, 17 years old, bringing us her views uh, a few years ago in a longhouse. And I think to thank her for, for that beautiful rendition. And our next guest is Elizabeth Woody, is an enrolled member of the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs in Oregon, and she's of Yakima descent and is born for, born, born for Bitterwater Clan of the Navajo Nation. Elizabeth, who is currently an executive director of the museum at Warm Spring, is a renowned poet, author, essayist, and visual artist. She is also an educator, mentor, collaborator, and community leader. Elizabeth earned a Master of Public Administration degree through the Marco Hatfield School of Governance Executive Leadership Institute of Portland State University, and much more. She's a recipient of numerous awards, including the American Book Award in 1990 and other book awards of poetry in 1995, a finalist in the Oregon Book Awards in 1995 also. Elizabeth has written three books of poetry. 2016, she was the first Native American to be named Oregon's Poet Laureate. And in that honor of 2018, Elizabeth received a National Artist Fellowship in Literature from the Native Arts and Cultures Foundation. She's taught at the Institute of American Indian Arts and much more to Portland State University. And I'm going to go on and on. <laughs> she has led workshops and lectures and multidisciplinary art fellowship, jury panels for several foundations and 
arts organizations internationally and nationally. I say internationally because between Native peoples, there are different tribes, so to speak. So that's international for us. And uh, we'd like to welcome you, Elizabeth Woody, to First Voices Radio. It's always an honor to even hear and, and know someone like you is able to come on to First Voices. Thank you for uh, being here today, Elizabeth. Well, thank you. It's actually um, a pleasure and an honor to me as well to be able to so um, you may be going in and out a little bit here, but I'm, I'm interested in, in what can I say here? I, I wanted to find someone who's been through the process, I would say, of COVID, but also in that understanding and also in, in the, I, I would say, making um, thought process about there are elders leaving us. And I'm referring to a New York Times article, June 12th, about the the tribal elders are dying from the pandemic, causing a cultural crisis for American Indians. And I'm thinking about this, and I'm give you this story, Elizabeth, is that you know we we've seen in Northwest these these lumber companies uh, just mill down thousands of acres, millions of acres of of, of old growth trees and then they replace all the same age new 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 trees all babies all the same age and they have no elders and those yeah. and those baby trees don't know how to treat each other they grow up and they're fighting and you know something that that those of us who've been in nature see the cooperation in nature when they have elders now what's disappearing here are our elders and the languages, and and uh, which is not so much present in the, the Western, the American society, is that you see what they do to their elders and where they put them. But here, it's a different story. The treasure, the treasures, the the, the language, the, the culture that's embedded in their DNA to to transmit, transition that knowledge to. The younger generations, and I'm thinking about what what you think about because your experience with COVID and your family it's it's touched everybody here, um, and so I just want to get your thoughts on this, and we'll we'll just go from there. Yeah, it's important to to look at that uh, concept when you're thinking about a community, and when you brought up the trees. Science has only recently begun to get reconnected to and it's integrated, and they talk about the elder trees being able to shoot nutrients through their roots to um, communicate with trees over a broad distance, as well as um, nurture and send nourishment and to other trees that are in need of it. So there's, there's a And so we've lost connection, technical connection with uh, Elizabeth Woody and uh, so we'll be we'll be right back and I'll try to ring her up once more bad connection so I have her now and thank you for for being there for this call Elizabeth I we, we were talking about the you know how the trees were separated from you know their elders and how they are now growing up without elders so let's continue with that story yes um, I'm just saying now that science is begun to catch up with some of our indigenous scientists. They're, they've recognized the fact that the trees are a community and communicate and nurture one another through their root system, through a fungal fungi and whatnot that's underneath the soil. So I think that that, that is a real illustrative um, 
picture of what it is in an indigenous community. We have a lot of connections to one another uh, that isn't necessarily visible to the public, but it's something that we all sense and, and feel. And I was raised by my grandparents, and I was very fortunate. And they also said they were fortunate to have me in their lives and my sister because we gave them a stronger life. They had a better vision when we were around. And the museum where I work at in 2018, we celebrated our 25th year anniversary with a treaty conference, our treaty of 1855 with the Middle Oregon, Columbia River, uh, the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs was part of that treaty. And we had recognized five uh, living treasures. And out of those living treasures in 2018, we have three who are no longer with us. And in our culture, we call them our ancestors. And one of them was a, a language teacher. Another one was uh, involved in the medicine dances. And another one was a, a gentleman who was a little bit older than I am, who uh, you know, was a flute player and spent a lot of time teaching young men about fishing and building gear. So those are really uh, difficult um, losses for us. And in Warm Springs, you know, the age of life expectancy for women for my generation was 54, and I'm 61 now, so I've exceeded that limitation, but a lot of times our um, elders are taking from us quite young. And we have had, you know, a lot of loss right now through the COVID-19 epidemic, and we, we have um, 18 deaths total right now, and it's a chronic a sense of grief that we feel because we aren't allowed to do our services and have our um, gatherings that we normally would have under these circumstances. So, yeah, we have rift of a lot of wisdom, and I like to think that that wisdom is still available to us if we're sensitive enough and if we're able to uh, build um, relationships, not just with elderly people, but with younger people, because that's the magic there, being able to uh, communicate and see our little ones grow up and have them know that they're loved and that they have a purpose and they have a future. Elizabeth, when, when you talk, I was imagining, as you were speaking growing up with your grandmother and in how you described, you know, the situations out there, it's, it's like... These languages is much different when when I'm hearing English, um, but these languages are, are living, living languages. They they are passed on because of our experience with each other, um, and I'm thinking, you know, because y your language um, and around that area of Warm Springs in Oregon, but your language also, you know, th there is a relationship, a coordination with that land, with the stars as our former guest Janine Yazi talked about, is that living relationship, the language, the energy is pure. Once it's like you grew up with your grandmother and your grandparents, and that was so pure, uninterrupted. But now, as you say, the COVID, as your experience is personally, and now the thoughts out there, how are we going to just line up and give Native, the elders, the, the vaccine, or are we just going to make sure that our traditions or medicines are, 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 uh, are there? How, we, how do we think about this? It seems like we're, we're, we are a little in chaos a little bit as Native people as what to do. Yes, I think there's a little bit of chaos there, but I know that some tribes have prioritized the Native language speakers, and here at Warm Springs, I think the priority is um, 
first responders and the elders in the facilities called Hailuki and everyone who's over 75. And then after that, we'll become down the list to different people in different categories. Uh, the other issue around the COVID-19 vaccinations and making sure elders are vaccinated is that they're more prone to die from COVID-19. I had COVID-19 and I'll say that publicly and I'm 61 and it was a horrible experience and it was very um, difficult for me in, in that I was able to help myself by uh, traditional medicines. We had cedar boiling on the stove. We had bitter root. Um, I had different herbs and teas that I keep at hand. So I was able to help myself that way. And also through prayer, which is a spoken, you know, spoken power of our, our heart and our minds. And I think that without native language, I've made poetry my way of connecting to that ancient um, utterances that we have in our languages that are tied to origin stories, that are tied to places and tied to, to people that we may not know now but had been around in ancient times, you know, the, the magical and spiritual beings. And my grandmother spoke Ichishkin um, fluently. She spoke a specific dialect that was around uh, Kanita or Hot Springs here in Warm Springs. My grandfather spoke seven languages. He spoke Ichishkin, he spoke Kiksh, and uh, various dialects of Ichishkin, like the Nez Perce, and uh, also Chinook Jagan, which is a trade language that incorporated all of these different languages into one so that people could conduct business. And with the um, the tribes here, we've been struggling for some time with um, the fact that we can't gather, and that's been terribly hard. And some people have tried new mechanisms, for example, having Zoom meetings where we can listen to our washout songs um, that are shared through the Longhouse, which is a you know, very important center. Uh, some shaker songs which are also um, a different kind of, uh, not a hybridization, but it's a combination of Christianity and Indian beliefs. And it's very strong and very beautiful in the Pacific Northwest. So yes, there's a lot to be considered when you think about these things and with, with how we're going to give out the vaccine. And the vaccine is really um, kind of a short-term fix. We really do need to uh, amend or abridge our behaviors, and that's the part that's been the most difficult. Because um, even though we uh, we don't know much about it, and the doctors don't know much about it, there are certain things that make it better for us. One is wearing masks and keeping a six foot distance from others, washing our hands frequently. And some people believe in you know totally sterilizing their house, but they found because of the fatty cover of COVID nineteen um, little little ball there that they always illustrate it with is uh, made of fat that you can basically break it down with dish soap. That it, it just dish soap over its surfaces is, is enough. And I think that's probably why um, some have not had that kind of background. They haven't really had exposure to the whole protocol and the communication of how we, we uh, share that information is really important. Because not everyone is on... Uh, in the internet or not everyone has an email. Basically, we are uh, people who like to see one another, like to be with one another, like to laugh with one another. And our teaching their hand is from one hand to the next 
it's not, you know, a giant classroom where everybody learns the tradition. It's handed down through your family and through your family's teaching. And the, the ideas, the discrepancy that people have in their minds about Native people, um, we heard a report earlier about Indigenous peoples within urban areas such as Los Angeles, and, you know, their, their close proximity is, is, is uh, compared or contrasted with those out in Navajo country or up in Lakota country and Muscogee. Native people really from these 48 contiguous states are actually the ones in the remote parts and their their accessibility to to you know even having you know hygiene hygiene deliveries so to speak and, and food you know that that also is leading to a lot of of the fluent indigenous language speakers um as you say are, are coming to the head of that line but also as much as we don't don't know or do know that that th- these languages are also going away with the people, and it's, it's a kind of a sad case to me. But these are these huge obstacles because of our lack of um, finances or anything like that? Well, I don't know how much of it is connected to finances or how much of it is connected to the uh, seats of power. Um, you know, in Oregon, in Warm Springs here, we have a real fragile water system that needs to be replaced, but we don't have the millions of dollars to do that right now. And the tribes, Warm Springs, Confederate tribes of Warm Springs had a lot of different enterprises at one point. And we had been considered one of the richer tribes in the Pacific Northwest because of our timberland. We have, I think, maybe one third of our, our reservation has timber on it. And we have a lot of water. So we have a, a power enterprise that's on this, um, South part of our border, and we also have, you know, major uh, tributaries, you know, connecting through here through our creeks and streams. But I think that with the internet, um, they haven't built enough broadband to come into rural parts of Oregon. But Warm Springs itself is even more isolated. As you had difficulty with me and my phone, um, that was my office phone, and we have the Warm Springs Telecom, and their phone is, breaks up and. And doesn't uh, people can't hear me completely, so that's why I use my cell phone. And because of the internet, I also use my cell phone for uh, a hotspot so that I can connect to these Zoom meetings and they don't get interrupted and slowed down by the internet that we have. And at my home, I have satellite, and it's still not the same, even though that's what rural rural communities choose sometimes is satellite. It's all dependent upon how they regulate the stream. It goes from the satellites to the communities. And so if some, if some of the communities are all on from 6 to 8, everyone's connection slows down and you're not getting the full amount of um, Internet that you've paid for. So that's just a, one example. The other uh, condition that I think is really difficult for us in, uh, in rural parts of the country, and I was raised here in Oregon. I was born on a Navajo reservation. Um, you know, my dad finally had, had electricity connected to his um, home near Chinle, and I told my Uncle Louie, and he says, wow, what next will he get, water? And that's true, they don't have running water. And I said, I wish that they would, because that's really something that is important for us. But also the water that you get from wells can sometimes be contaminated. And I have a, a sister there who has kidney problems, and her mother died, I think, from kidney problems. And my father's has one kidney, and he has one uh, had his gallbladder removed. 
because of the nutrition and the water. I'm in a different situation where I can um, go outside of the food desert here and go buy fruits and vegetables if I need it. And we have to go to town. We have to go to Madras. We have to go to Bend. We have to go to Redmond, go to Portland or Hood River or the Dalles, which are all over, well, Triffer, Warm Springs, Redmond are over 50 miles away. And um, many people don't have that luxury of being able to get in their car and do those drives. We also have, um, in that food desert, um, with little access to, for example, alternative medicines, and that's where native healing can come in for some folks. For example, um, uh, we, uh, when I was growing up, if we had trouble breathing, my great-auntie Mary, who had emphysema, told us to use juniper, juniper berries, and steam it and put a towel over your head and breathe it in, and it helps clear out your lungs. We have growing wild in our, our yards, mullen, which is a very important herb for lungs to help the lungs um, have an expectorant, as well as encourage the health of your lungs. And we had the wildfires this summer that was so deadly. It was more extreme than the worst city in the world here in Warm Springs. I mean, Portland had a very high indicator. And they, they were listed as one of the worst uh, air quality in, in the world. But our air quality here was, it was worse. Um, we were maybe about 14 miles as the crow flies from the big fire that started on a reservation from, from um, thunder and lightning that went over the mountain into Willamette Valley and destroyed a lot of homes and a lot of businesses. So, you know, just being in the country has its benefits, meaning there are wild herbs and plants and foods that we can gather here on the reservation. We have deer, we have elk, we have um, our roots and berries that are nearby. We have access to them through our treaty which is called usual and accustomed places. And if we could live with that kind of food and we grow our own food, we would be very self-sufficient. But through the process of uh, creating a reservation and putting us here and keeping us anchored to a specific spot, um, and sometimes people were ranchers and sometimes they were farmers, but it was never really encouraged that we have a whole system here that we could rely on they would keep us independent of other places. So your local food knowledge is important as well as being able to grow and make your own food. Well, Elizabeth, so people, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, thank you for joining us this morning. I mean, just it's just it's so good to know that you're there and that that knowledge is there and I could feel that. And any any of you listeners want to look up what Woody uh, Elizabeth Woody is doing, it's museum at warmsprings.org for all that's going on and what she describes out there, but also look at the site. It's amazing to, to know that cultures still exist here before civilizations ever showed up and our societies are still here as Elizabeth talked about. Our language is basically who we are. And I want to just want to thank you for being here, Elizabeth, for for taking the time out from your, your, your day to to convey your expressions here on First Voices Radio. Thanks. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. That's Elizabeth Woody. She's also the, um, the executive director of the Museum at Warm Springs, a renowned poet, author, essayist, and visual artist. And we are out of time. I'd like to thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio. And my name is Teokasen Ghost Horse Doksha Ake Wachinktelo.
can it be? Do you hear a new freedom song? Almost here. 